0: As um, You know our children Our three children really grew up in Victoria And when they're little of course They're not really allowed to leave The the area of of our yard And as they got a little older They're able to take their bikes And maybe go visit a friend who lives on the same lane That we did As they get a little older they can travel a little bit In our neighborhood And then when they're into their teen years They were allowed to sort of maybe head downtown Go by bus or with some friends Or whatever it is that kind of thing You understand that You know that in Victoria, all of that changed on March the 24th, 1991. All of that changed because on that day, a little four-year-old boy called Michael Denny he went missing. One Sunday afternoon, his parents were playing touch football in a park right beside him, just really a few feet away from him. They turned around just to check on him, as any of us, his parents, would do, and they noticed to their horror that he was gone. Michael Donahue has never been found. I remember the next day, the Monday morning in Victoria, all the children's playgrounds and parks, all the places where children gather and play after school, they were all empty. All empty. And there was an eerie silence in the city. If you've been following the news, the national news this week, um, a second person Two people were convicted of the murder and the rape and sexual assault of a little eight-year-old girl down in Ontario. Her name was Tori Stafford. Humanly, that must be as excruciating and as agonizing as it gets for any parent or grandparent. As many of his parents and grandparents know that kidnapping, the taking of a child, is as painful an experience as we could ever imagine. We have eight grandchildren. When we're, got them going to wherever it might be, visiting, whatever, we really these days never let them out of our sight. And without minimizing that one bit, and please understand me without trivializing it, the Apostle John, as he writes 1 John for us, opens up an even more serious abduction. It is all of those occasions in which people walked away from the truth and walked away from the faith. They're more than losing their lives. They're really putting their souls in jeopardy. And if you have a Bible or you track with me in a sunny morning, I hope you do, please turn to 1 John chapter 2, it's verse 19. Verse 19. John says very seriously to us, they went out from us, they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That's verse 19 if you've got it. John is addressing in there a very serious pastoral situation. It's people who were part of the church and there every Sunday morning claimed to know Christ. But they walked out of the faith and out of the community. Their going, he said, was proof that they really didn't belong in the first place. I can actually think in my life of only a few people who have done that, who have deliberately turned their back on the truth. But I can think of many, many other Christians who in one way or another have been kidnapped. They have been seduced. The Bible warns us that there are some dangers that we face, as we talked about last week, in the world. Let me give you this morning just really headings for five of them. First of all, childish and immaturity. Ephesians says to us, Therefore we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and the craftiness of men and their deceit for scheming. There's a constant encouragement that we would grow in grace and know His word. It is, there's a huge difference between being child-like and being childish as Christians. We need to know that. Secondly, we're told to watch for consumerism. Paul says in First Timothy, For the love of money, notice that, the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the truth. And he says they've pierced themselves with many griefs. There's a man in the New Testament called Demas. You know Demas. Here's what it says about Demas and Timothy. It says, Demas loved this world and so he deserted me. That's what Paul says. He loved the world. The glitter and the, the bling in the world, he loved that. And he said, he's gone. What a terrible epitaph about somebody's life. Imagine coming here on a sunny morning and you look around and you say, hey, where's Demas? Where did Demas go? How come Demas isn't on the worship team this morning? How come Demas isn't on the ushering team this morning? And somebody says, Demas quit. He packed it in. He loved this world and so he deserted the faith. They do what John warns us not to do in last week's study, to love the world. One of his parables, Jesus tells us about the cares and the busyness of this world, he says, which can choke out the word of the kingdom. Every one of us needs to be aware of that. Third danger is shallowness. That we do not go deep in the matters of the faith. It just stays on the surface. That is why so many, many scriptures, Colossians 2 and 7, for example, encourage us to be strengthened and rooted in the faith and to be built up. you got to go grow deep or you may fall. Fourthly, spiritual confusion and uncertainty. The result of not being rooted in the faith is that we become so easily seduced by so many voices in our culture. Some Christians wander into into some version of the new age or into another world religion like Buddhism. They see Christian truth as like going going into the cafeteria. And you kind of pick up your plate and your knife and fork and you, you go down the cafeteria line and you say, Well, I think of a little bit of salvation. That sounds pretty good. I don't want too much discipleship. That might be hard. I certainly don't want any servanthood. Don't want to do that. Heaven sounds fine. So we'll add some heaven to our plate. We don't want to take things that are hard to swallow. Maybe a little sprinkle of Buddhism won't hurt somewhere along that. Oh, meditation. Now that sounds nice. I'll put some meditation on my dessert tray. And so along the buffet line we go. Some Christians become so uncertain of the truth that they cannot really discern what what is truth. They're putting themselves in danger, the scripture says. They're living in harm's way. Number five. And this is to be very honest this morning. Some Christians, in one way or another, have been burned by the church. And you know what they sadly say? I don't need that anymore. I'm out of here. I can understand that. Harriet and I have been in pastoral ministry now, my wife and I, for over 40 years. And I will just be honest with you this morning. We have seen the church at its best and at its worst. We have been loved and cared for by the church and by people in the church who have um, gathered us in. And we have also been abandoned. There are times, quite frankly, that I have wanted to quit. And pack it in and walk away from it all. But there's something that I cannot get rid of. At the heart and core of my life is something called the call. It's the call of God in me. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. And he says, I have laid hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. The church is not perfect. In Corinthians he talks about those quarrels and disagreements. And all kinds of things that happen in life. All kinds of stuff goes on. You know that, and we know that. You might also have come close at times to saying, for what goes on in this church, you know what, I don't need to take that anymore. I think I'm ready to quit. This morning, I'm going to ask you to raise your sights and your eyes higher than that. And to hold on to the work of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit in your life. And don't quit. Here's what we face, I think, in our world. Our greatest danger may not be that we will deny and renounce the faith. We won't turn our back on it. Our greatest danger is that we will simply settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll settle for something we're just going kind to of drifting into church on in a Sunday morning and kind of drifting out again an hour or so later. We settle for a dim shadow of all that it really can be. And we miss what is at the heart and the core of our Christian life. So why would people be connected? Why would people be seduced? Why have they not remained as John says? Why have they refused to kind of stay the course and not stay with it? Let me suggest to you this morning, we need to realize, and Edmund has led us well in this this morning, that the heart and core of our lives is the work of God in the Trinity. This morning we're going to talk about theology. But theology has a very practical purpose in our lives. And we need to realize that. And we're going to look at verses 20 through to about 27. okay? And I will be honest and tell you, these verses are not easy. And they seem to kind of weave back and forth. And sometimes you read them and think, what is that really talking about? So I will try, when I get into a passage, that's really difficult. What I try to do is take a couple of steps back. And look at the passage in sort of what we might call a wide-angle lens, and see what it says for us this morning. It's not an easy passage. And so we look at through this wide-angle lens, and woven in this somewhat complex passage are numerous references to the doctrine of what we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians are Trinitarians. We believe in the Trinity. And you'll see this morning, it is the truth of the Trinity, and holding on to that, that really keeps us safe. Because the truth of the Trinity is woven into the central work of our salvation. God the Father arranges it. The Son accomplishes it on the cross. And the Spirit applies it and makes it work in our lives. Let's unpack that. We need to know God the Father as the key to a personal relationship with them. I think if you went around this neighborhood or wherever you live or wherever you work and, and you said to people very simply, Do you believe in God? I think a lot of people from the statistics and the things you get in Canada, we say, Yeah, we believe in God. Frankly, though, they're not really sure of the kind of God they believe in. That's the difference. Some people talk about God being kind of, you know, the big guy up in the sky as some kind of a cosmic grandfather to us all. In our society, you see the value at times of 12-step recovery programs for those who struggle with alcohol, (coughs) smoking, whatever it might be. And I appreciate that they've brought many people out of given people freedom from the addictions that have bound them. I'm not being critical of them this morning in any way. But early in one of those steps to recovery, people are told that they need to reach out and embrace a higher power. Whoever they believe that power to be. It's a necessary step in acknowledging that there's a power outside of us that we need to reach for and we need to find. The struggles of life cannot be mastered simply by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Now to that end, this step is good. But only as far as it goes. If it stays there, you see, it falls short of introducing and inviting people to know God as Father. At the very heart of the core of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus knew God as his Father. We learn to come to him in prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. More than anything else. Jesus refers to God as His Father, an intimate relationship within this divine family. He says He came to do the Father's will. Jesus says in John chapter 4, He says, My food, my strength, my nourishment, what nurtures me, He says, is to do the will of my Father. Jesus says later in John, he says, I and my Father are one. We're bound together. We're woven together. He says, my heavenly Father knows your need. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Jesus says that no one really comes to know the Father except through him. You catch all those references? Orthodox thinking about God in this confusing world in which we hear a cacophony of religious voices. Orthodox truth invites us, and orthodox truth demands us to know God as much more than simply a higher power. He's not some cosmic grandfather. He's not someone in the universe to be addressed to whom it may concern. We need to know God when we pray to Him, when we meet Him, when we talk to Him as our Father. He is the Father who holds our hands tightly. He is the Father who watches for us to come home when we are having one of our prodigal moments, our prodigal days. We we are always welcome to climb on His lap. He will always listen to our stories of childlike joy. He will always have an ear for our struggles, whether they be large or small. Let me ask you this morning as we come in a few minutes to this table. When you take this bread and this wine... You bow your head. Can you thank God that He's your Father? He's your Father. It also means that knowing Christ as the Son is the key to His identity. Verse 22. Who is the liar? It's the man who says, who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such man is the Antichrist, he denies Father and Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son is the Father also. See again how tightly they're bound together. Now, John's gospel was written against a background. What's this philosophy called? It begins with a G. Gnosticism. Gnosticism had a terrible struggle trying to understand Jesus and his nature. Remember that Gnosticism was dualistic. And so in Gnosticism, the spiritual and the material can't come together. They're always struggling in this kind of teeter totter. On the one hand, some people in those days saw Jesus as all divinity. He was all God, no real human. Stories were told about how Jesus would walk across the wet sand and not leave any footprints because his body had no weight. At the other end of this teeter-totter, there was people taught he was a human being, but he wasn't divine. Because you see, in Gnosticism, the human and the divine cannot come together. And between his humanity and his divinity, there was a whole range of options in the 2nd and 3rd century heresies about who this Jesus was. How can you really understand this one who is fully God, fully man? At the heart of every heresy, and at the heart of every cult, is a substandard belief and understanding of who Jesus really is. The ultimate doctrinal test for Christians is always centered on the person of Jesus. On the one hand, we hold as humanity. It means that Jesus was nothing less who took himself and entered into everything that constitutes a fully human experience. We are reminded in Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize and share with us our weaknesses, but one who has entered into everything we know and feel. He is engaged with every frustration of being human. But on the other hand, we hold as a divinity. It says he was in the form of God. He came in the person of God and he walked in the Father's will. And So he inspires us beyond the ordinariness of what it means to be human. Jesus supernaturalizes our natural existence and the routine of our humanity. There are three major confessions of Jesus in the Bible. First of all, he is the Son of God. Secondly, He's the Christ, which means Christos, the Anointed One. And thirdly, He's the Lord. This is the confession that you have made and I have made to Him in baptism. And one reason that our baptism is so critical to us, that it does not let us forget what we confessed. I don't really remember the night I accepted Jesus in a Baptist church in Glasgow. But I will never forget... The night in that church when I was baptized. I remember the verse that was given to me. Almost 50 years ago now. It says that God who began a good work in you Tom. Will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. And when we're baptized we confess that Jesus is Son of God and Lord. We surrender our lives, our will, our heads, our hearts. To him in this unforgettable act of confession. And so we need to say, this Jesus is the one who's at the center and heart and the core of my life. Got to move on quickly. We also need to know the work and the power of the Spirit in us. Now, I'll be honest, many churches, uh, many Christians, make one or two mistakes regarding the Holy Spirit. Either they exaggerate his work in ministry beyond what the Scriptures say, they make too much of it, or they minimize his work in ministry, make too less of it. What do we do? Ephesians chapter 1. Have I got that on the screen or not? I can't remember. Do I? Ephesians, do I have that? Yeah, I do. Okay, that's good. I do these things weeks ago. Sometimes I can't remember. Okay. Does a lady have an engagement ring? I could borrow. Somebody have an engagement ring? Naomi, you've got one. Did you get that last week? (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay, you might get it back. Let's see. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit... The deposit that guarantees our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the deposit that guarantees our inheritance. Okay? Well, that sounds nice. But do you know what the word really means in modern Greek? It's the word for an engagement ring. Somewhere, and Philip and Naomi, I don't want to embarrass you this morning, but I might a little. Can I, how long have you folks been married? What is 45 years. Is it 45 years, Philip? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer, Philip. Somewhere, and I won't ask you where or when, but somewhere a little before that, as you folks were getting to know each other, Philip, in some form or fashion, Naomi, said, you're the person with whom I want to spend all my life. All right? And he asked you for permission for that And he asked to seal that relationship with you. And he gave you an engagement ring. Right? And somewhere in that he was saying, we have a whole richer, fuller life, a more intimate life in marriage still to come. The deposit. This is the down payment. That doesn't sound very romantic, does it? (laughs) But this is the deposit, Naomi, of a marriage ring... And years of marriage stretched out ahead of us in family. This is where it starts. Isn't that right? Okay. Did you get one? No. No. You ever figured out why? I don't know why the guys don't get a ring at those points. I don't know. But Naomi, that's lovely. And thank you. But do you know what God says too? God is saying to all of us in our own ways, I love you. I love you. I love you. And when that truth dawns on us, and we say, God, I love you, and I want to love you back. God says, I want to seal our engagement. I want to seal of this relationship. I want to give you my deposit, my engagement ring. And that's the Holy Spirit. It's a promise of a much greater intimacy and life with God, which is really still to come. And that's what God does to us. And I appreciate um, that there are churches make different emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Here's simply what I teach. Every Christian is given the gift and the presence of the Spirit when they become Christians. Everything we need is given to us in our spiritual birth. What is His task in your life and my life? Jesus says that the work of the Spirit is the continuation of His work in the ministry of Jesus. He says in John 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you another comforter. The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot accept because it doesn't know Him and it doesn't see Him. You know, He says to His disciples, it is for your good that I go back to the Father. They couldn't understand that. Because He says, if I don't go to the Father, the Spirit is not able to come. Ultimately, the Spirit's work in your life and my life is one of life change. Life transformation. He takes the rough clay of our lives and is working us to shape and mold and fashion us into the character of Jesus. That's what He does. To do that, there are really three critical changes that the Holy Spirit has to do with us. First of all is to change our consciousness. How we think. The Holy Spirit starts us thinking in a new way. It often comes like the silent march of the dawn. Slowly, relentlessly, relentlessly pushing the morning fog away. Exchanging stale thoughts for fresh and new ones. But it's not enough to become conscious of new truth. The second stage in your life and my life is one of conviction. Jesus says when he comes, he will convict the world. times that's me. In regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit says, Tom, if, if you really want to move in the way of God, then you've got to realize that the way your feet are walking is wrong. And you've got to move in a whole new kind of direction. Conviction will move me forward and challenges me to the place of truth in God. The final stage is when the conviction is turned to action. Through the word of God and the spirit of God. When we understand God's truth and when we're convicted by it firmly, then a new law of action begins to take over our lives. This law of God insists in us that people can change. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's not quick. But it's the profound realization that God can make a change in us. And I need to become a different kind of person on the inside. That's what John says. You know what's in you? He says, what is it work in you is the work of the Trinity. The Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. You understand that this morning. And then in verse 28, he wraps up his thought. He says, now dear children, continue in him. He's simply saying to each one of us this morning, 2,000 years later, you know what? As you sit in this church in Vancouver, don't quit. I don't, I don't really care what what life throws against you you don't quit. I don't care the times you get disappointed at other Christians in the church. You don't quit. You don't pack it in. You don't walk away. You don't be like Demas. So that when he appears, he says, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So he says, don't quit. Don't quit. Let me finish with a story out of our family. I don't have permission for this, but whatever. Several years ago, one of our sons, um, Peter, ran the Canadian Ironman in Penticton. If you don't know what the Ironman is, it starts with a swim of 2.4 miles and then a bike race of 112 miles, and then you finish with a little marathon of 26.2 miles. For those of you who think in metric, the swim is 3.8k, the bike race is 180k, and the run is 42.2k. No matter which way you measure it, it seems to me to be a long way. Our son Peter determined for this first time his personal goal would be 14 hours. If he could do that in 14 hours... So he came in under the electronic scoreboard, we watched him on the internet. And his time was thirteen fifty nine twenty nine. He just made it. And as part of his reward, he and all the others who made it to the end, they got a medal and they got a T shirt to wear that simply said finisher. Finisher. It meant that you could walk around if you could walk. <laughs> You could walk around Penticton the next day with your t-shirt on that said, finisher. Can you imagine Jesus standing at the other side of the finishing line? He's got a pile of t-shirts in his hand, ready to hand him up. to all those who crossed the finishing line. And it simply says, finisher. You made it to the end of the race. You didn't quit. You didn't pack it in. You didn't walk out, you stayed to the end, your truth kept your feet the truth kept your, your feet moving forward. Even when your muscles were sore and your lungs were gasping for air, you did not quit. What a profound difference that is. When we come in just a moment, Edmund, do you coming to bring your team? When we come in just a moment to this table. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I don't know why I keep going. You know, so-and-so in the church, I'm disappointed at them. I'm disappointed at this and that and leadership or whatever it is. I'm getting kind of discouraged. Or you look around at how people seem to get on in our society. And you say, man, they're doing so well. Maybe I should just go join them. This morning, can I ask you pastorally, when you take a piece of bread... And a piece of wine in just a moment. Can you tighten your grip on that? And tighten your grip on God as Father, Christ as Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I assure you, if you will tighten your grip on these things, they will tighten your grip on you. Father, this morning, would you bless us as we come to this table in a moment. And Father, if someone is just at that point where truth seems to be kind of just slipping a little through their fingers, help them to tighten their grip on Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.